On August 6, 2012, a car-sized rover called Curiosity fell from the top of the Martian atmosphere to the planet's surface. The fall took seven minutes. Down. Down. The rover carried a precious cargo, 500,000 lines of code, 76 pyrotechnic devices, and a series of tools for conducting never-before-possible experiments. After releasing a supersonic parachute, after heat shield separation, after power descent, and even a sky crane deployment in mid-air, Curiosity at last touched down. Hear that sound? That's what it sounds like when a room full of engineers lands a rover on Mars. In a few days, they'll be getting a congrats phone call from President Barack Obama. But for now, it's all about the team. A room full of people who know they've just accomplished something together that they could never have accomplished on their own. I'm Saranyat Barak, and this is Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. All season long, we've seen how open source technology remakes the way we work and what we're capable of accomplishing. The through line for me has always been community. It's always about discovering better ways to work together, better ways to learn from the pros while listening to fresh voices, too better ways to connect. For our season two finale, we're holding on to all those lessons while we discover how open source powers some of our grandest projects. You might have been watching last November when NASA's InSight lander touched down on the surface of Mars. Hugs all around. Well, it turns out that shooting for the stars, or the red planet, only works when you bet everything on collaboration. Did I mention that rover on Mars has its own Twitter account? Four million followers. No big deal. And it recently tweeted a message to Earthlings, an invitation to build a rover of their own, complete with open source instructions and code, courtesy of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. We caught up with some folks called the SGV Hack Group. They're one of the first to build their own rover. I'm going to try and drive over that curb. Let's see what she can do. Going up. Nope. She used to be able to go over pretty easily, but with the changes we've made to the wheels, she's a little reluctant now. The group includes Roger Chang, Dave Flan, Emily Velasco, and Lan Deng. Dave designs all the mechanical stuff, and I guess I put things together. Um, Roger's our software guy, Dave's design, Lan is our fearless leader, so... You are the one that, uh, you're the mechanical fabrication expert on the team. I guess, right? I guess so. Tell, yeah, tell, you're, tell you're, people about the servo bracket. Yeah, oh, you're right. the one that built the, yeah. the, the yeah. servo kludge that yeah. let us run at the show. When we were going we to take... Building one of these rovers isn't exactly a Lego project. It takes actual rocket scientists about 200 hours to complete. 
So, yeah, let's give these guys a few minutes to get their act together. We'll check in with them later. Meanwhile, I wanted to learn more about why NASA gave the world an open-source rover in the first place. And I found just the person to ask. My name is Tom Soderstrom. I am a Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for IT at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. JPL is a group of about 6,000 people. It's NASA's federally funded research center, and they focus on robotic exploration in space. We look for, is there life out there? How did the universe originate? Where is it going? Uh, And in addition to that, should we ever need to export humanity, we're trying to find Earth 2.0, Earth-like planets uh, that one day we could inhabit. Yeah, it's the big leagues. But here's the thing. Tom's team isn't some siloed group of engineers. They're deeply committed to connecting with the next generation of scientists. They're constantly trying to find new ways to spark original thinking. In fact, it's a crucial part of their job. The Open Source Rover Project gives away those designs, so teams of non-NASA folk can try building their own rover. That was part of NASA's larger strategy to promote innovation. Tom and I got talking about why open sourcing NASA's work is so important, starting naturally with that open source rover. A lot of people are, but when I go on this side, I'm like, oh man, maybe I can make a rover. (laughs) You know, it's, it's really exciting. It's really engaging. We built it for the public in schools to learn. Mm-hmm. And we're realizing that as we did, it's becoming a wonderful experimentation platform for us. So as we try new things, uh, it's the best place to try it. Very easy, very quick. And then we can put it on the real rovers. So we're hoping that people will incorporate things like solar panels, mm-hmm. accelerometers, the science payloads, very advanced uh, artificial intelligence programming. And we just want the experiences to... Uh, proliferate and uh, people get interested in this and eventually interested in space. The space is way cool. So besides the ideas that you have listed on things that people can do, what have people done with it that you were really excited about or impressed by? Uh, The price reduction was one really impressive thing. And uh, right now there's a lot of AI going on. So that's one of the most interesting things I see coming. I would love to see somebody add a robot arm to it. Uh, And uh, it's something we're thinking about. So it sounds like this project is open on all angles, right? I mean, the hardware is a list of parts that are suggested. And it sounds like you can use your own thing, make it cheaper, make it more expensive also, I guess, if you wanted to. The software is completely open. Is there any part of this that isn't open? No, it's all completely open. So what's really amazing about this is if you told me that high school students could build their own rovers, that would just sound too difficult. (laughs) You know, that sounds so advanced. It sounds like something that only NASA would do, right? Um, How simple is it really to put together? So it's not meant to be a toy. It's meant to be something real uh, that really gives them the real experience. So several schools in California have already adopted it to put it into their science and uh, and engineering and programming program, uh, something called Mechatronics, for instance, where it combines all of them. And that makes us very happy because uh, then we will get better trained uh, and people coming into NASA at one point. 
But it sounds like at this point, it's not only benefiting these future NASA people, these future uh, scientists, but it's also benefiting you. Tell me a little bit more about that. So all of a sudden, we have now a very simple platform to experiment with. So I can envision uh, the open source rover uh, driving around JPL and saying hello to people. So we can experiment very quickly in our own backyard on things that we would later on need to take to much more difficult places. So it becomes a mobile platform uh, that we can experiment with. And again, I think AI is going to be the the interesting one because it's exploding so quickly. And the simplicity of adding new robotics parts to it is another uh, factor. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, you could have created your own mobile playground and, you know, place to experiment and not made it open source, right? It could have just been like an internal thing. Um, What... How has the fact that it's been open source affected what you've been able to learn? So that's a really good question. Um, Why open source? Uh, For us, it was more difficult to make it open source. Uh, But that's kind of the challenge. So we wanted to make it open source so that other schools and all that could adopt it and build it. Um, It created a lot more work to create a manual that other people could use who are not already robotics experts. Mm, Right. The bottom line is, I think when we release something into open source, it's cleaner, it's tighter, it's better documented because people know other people are going to reuse this and uh, it has to be built to be extended. So the quality is higher. Mm. Uh, I talked to Netflix and they had found the same thing, that the code, once it was released open source, was cleaner. It was better. Mm. When you think about these open source rovers, five, 10, maybe 20 plus years from now, how do you see the things that they're able to do and what people have been able to create? How do you see that possibly benefiting us here on Earth? In many, many ways. Uh, So today, this rover is built to roll, right? Uh, I can see that it could be built to walk. It could be extended to hop, Uh, We're already sending a helicopter to Mars. It's flying right now. So these rovers are not just rovers of today. Having people worldwide experiment with it can help us move much, much faster Mm. to see what's possible and come up with ideas that, frankly, we might not have thought of. So what will it look like? I can't wait to see, (laughs) but I don't know. (laughs) By creating this platform, you've kind of enabled and empowered a lot of people to make a lot of toys and then we'll see what turns up. Yes, and and that's actually a very strong point because what I have noticed is if I can even think of something, somebody's already doing it. It's a matter of finding them and whatever we came up with to start, once the end users get their hands on it, they're going to improve it tenfold in ways that we never even imagined. Uh, So giving them toys to play with makes uh, for a much stronger and better place uh, with more advanced uh, missions in the future. Beautiful. If you feel like getting in on the open source rover mission, you can find out how at opensourcerover.jpl.nasa.gov. There is so much fun to be had there. We'll return for more with Tom Soderstrom. But first... I want us to dig a bit deeper into NASA's relationship with open source. Hi, I'm Hilal Lifshitz-Asaf. I'm a professor at Stern School of Business, NYU. Hilal has been studying how NASA breaks down knowledge barriers. If you go back 
uh, even to 15th century, and you think about lone inventors, kind of Leonardo da Vinci and others, uh, they were kind of connected only in their local communities. And then we had the Industrial Revolution and the birth of the lab. And ever since, uh, kind of for 200 years or more, people have been working in their labs. And the big change that happened in the 21st century with the digital revolution that we're experiencing has brought up uh, things like open source, which are debunking the need for those organizational boundaries that we had. In NASA's work, Gila sees a prime example of that massive change. One of the things that attracted me about NASA was that they were the bravest in the sense that they really uh, took strategic R&D challenges that their scientists and engineers and top brains were working at the same time and opened them to the crowd. And I have to say that still until today, many other organizations, when they do open source science or crowdsourcing, they do not take their core strategic challenges. They take something that is on the side, that doesn't risk their organization too much, whether it succeeds or fails. And NASA did something that really changed things once it succeeded. Starting back in 2009, NASA began using open innovation platforms like Innocentive and Topcoder. And they weren't playing around. Like Gila mentioned, they were putting their top R&D challenges on those platforms. It didn't even took a full year to see solutions starting to come from crowdsourcing platforms. Real quick, I want to give you just one of the home runs they got from opening up their research. Gila's going to describe how they were able to level up their solar flare prediction. So predicting solar storms is a hard heliophysics problem that people have been working on it for more than a decade. And basically they formulated it in a way uh, that was able to be solved by a wide area of people. And they were very intentional about it. Uh, that's the amazing thing that I found, that they were trying to get solutions for people outside of heliophysics. They were really looking for an innovative solution. And indeed, uh, Bruce Cragen, a semi-retired radio engineer from rural New Hampshire, in three months brought a solution that predicted solar flares. And when the NASA folks ran it, they actually saw that it predicted at 80%. So basically something that in the traditional model will take years and millions of dollars happened in three months in something around $30,000 to $40,000, $50,000. You might have already guessed, this kind of change required some culture shifts over at NASA. So some of them invited those external solvers to come to their organizations, other created internships or collaboration, all type of interesting ways to bring that knowledge in and not to keep it kind of buffered. There's something kind of beautiful there when you think about it. A lot of organizations still resist open source development and don't like giving up proprietary software. But here, you've got the most innovative, biggest picture group of scientists on the planet. And they're saying, yeah, you know what? Let's do this together. That's a powerful thing. We've seen that revolution in software. We have not yet fully seen it in science and technology. And I think it is prime time to go through it. The more we see the rise of computational physics, computational biology, the more this will uh, become possible. I think uh, much more of the population can participate and help in different type of tasks. And maybe this way, science and technology can really make progress beyond developing a new app. Gila Leafsheets Azoff is a professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU. 
NASA benefits massively from opening up their research challenges. But another way they build community is via the Small Business Innovation Grant Program, which supports innovative work in the private sector. All those blue-sky projects that are risky, but might pay off big time. Hi, my name is Dan Waxpress. I'm an aeronautical engineer working at Continuum Dynamics Incorporated. Dan's company, CDI, does R&D related to the rotorcraft industry. So that's helicopters, gyrocopters, anything that uses wings or blades to fly. Literally, blue sky. They've been working with NASA, researching vertical takeoff. Think Jetson-style air taxis. The whole idea is once you have electric motors instead of gas turbine engines on your vehicles, you can have many more propulsors that could be much quieter, safer, and all issues with helicopters that annoy people could go away. And we might have a world where you call up a taxi that takes you from Dallas to Fort Worth, let's say, in an electric-powered air taxi with four other passengers and no pilot, as opposed to getting in a car and trying to battle through the traffic. That's the vision. A lot of companies, including Uber, are very interested in the potential of air taxis. And the great thing about NASA's role here is that it breaks down barriers that would exist if each of those companies were slogging through the research on their own. Companies do not want to divulge information necessarily. They want to keep trade secrets. And they won't share knowledge as uh, NASA's goal is to put as much knowledge and as much capability as possible out there in their hands. And I think if you talk to any of these companies, they'll agree that they're just, they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing as fast as they're doing if they weren't supported by NASA and uh, the technology NASA's pushing on today and has pushed on in the past. I'm guessing it doesn't hurt that NASA's already got some pretty killer wind tunnels, too. From Mars rovers to flying cars, are you getting a certain vibe here? We're talking about innovation, where the sky is not even the limit. And it's all because of the planet-sized collaboration that the open-source mindset makes possible. I promise we'd come back to NASA's Tom Soderstrom. Tom figures that all the open-source magic we've been exploring for the past two seasons is building up into a massive shift point that he calls the Fourth Industrial Revolution. When you look at how innovation happens, it's really about uh, technology waves. And there's a lot of technology waves that are coming right now. And they're all building to a giant tsunami. They're coming faster and faster. And they're all going to change everything. So that's why we call it the fourth industrial revolution. I'm just going to break down what's in those waves super fast, even though each one of them could be an episode in itself. When Tom talks about those waves that are hitting us, he's talking about things like cybersecurity challenges at scale, quantum computing, and software-defined everything. But wait, there's more. He's also talking about ubiquitous computing, natural interfaces, and the Internet of Things. These all build to the giant tsunami, which is built-in intelligence everywhere. When you imagine this 
tsunami, this moment when it all comes together and creates something bigger than its individual parts. What does that look like? I I think it's not going to be like one day somebody stands up and says, look at this, I am now announcing built-in intelligence everywhere. It's creeping into everything that we do. Um, we say smart, right? A smart TV, a smart conference room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really where we will st- start realizing that it's becoming smarter and smarter and smarter. And for the enterprise, it means you can just ask a question by speaking to the room and it searches through petabytes of data in thousands of different data sources and gets you the answer. So it, it's natural language processing, it's deep learning, it's machine learning. And we're not going to say all of a sudden, wow, we're here. Uh, it's just going to keep morphing and getting better and better. Thinking about this fourth industrial revolution, how does that influence the way you do work at the Jet Propulsion Lab? I think the uh, experimentation. Uh, mm. This next industrial revolution is really helping us experiment quicker mm-hmm. and to take advantage of much better components, both software and hardware, that perhaps we don't have to build all of it, but we can just be more intelligent about using it. And then open source. Open source is really what's changing a lot of how we work and and what we do. How so? Tell me more about that. I think the open source, um, I'm old enough to have gone through the open source wars where uh, the open source was uh, a toy, it was bad, it was... Uh, inferior to commercial. Mm-hmm. All of that has kind of gone away, uh, at least at JPL. Now it's what's most appropriate for the problem at hand. It's more economical. It's much faster to experiment. Another one is on open source is we don't have to develop everything ourselves anymore. Uh, we can uh, develop it. And then if we can release it to open source, we can get help to make it better. Uh, yep. And then it helps us retain and attract talent. This one is interesting. And that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think people, uh, the new generation especially, get their street creds from <laughs> submitting to open source and getting as many stars as possible. So that's what you'll see on the resume. My software got X stars. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about how much open source has affected and helped the work that you're doing is the fact that Open source isn't new, right? You mentioned yourself mm-hmm. that you've lived through the open source wars and you've seen it progress over the years. What is it about open source today that allows you to really take advantage of it in a way that maybe you couldn't 10, 15, 20 years ago? There's a couple. Uh, one of them is simply cloud computing. We don't have to do the big bet and buy uh, a bunch of software and own it for many years. We can just experiment. So that's been a big one. Mm -hmm. The other one is the realization that uh, open source is no less secure than commercial source. It's no longer, uh, forgive the expression, a religious argument. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. more of an economical and practical discussion. Open source has clearly played a big part in what you all are doing, especially when you think about the future of JPL and what you hope to accomplish moving forward, it sounds like open source will probably continue to be a big part of that story. When you think about the most exciting or the most ideal outcome of that collaboration, that participation, what might that look like? And what do you think it will mean for humankind? That's a great question. Um, I think that the real answer is, you just said it, humankind. Uh, It's getting everybody more involved in what we do. 
you know, one day we're going to put humans on Mars. Uh, we're going to explore even further to find Earth 2.0. Uh, we're going to uh, put humans on the moon again. All of that will require a lot more involvement from the world. I'm into that revolution. Tom Soderstrom is the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for IT at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. From Earth 2.0 back to Earth 1.0, it's time to remember the humble origins of that fourth industrial revolution. As grand as open source projects can get, it all starts with a group of hackers just trying to make their rover work. So we're going to see if it'll run. We're going to, we put down another thing to help it get over the curve. It made it! Yay! Yay! Uh-oh. Now you can't get down. It's stuck in the flower bed. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's all twisted up there. Oh. Now we're just going to have to lift it out. It's not on Mars. You can just go over and pick it up. (laughs) I think they're making progress. We're going to leave those command line heroes just the way we found them. Exploring, learning, diving into their work, and knowing that, through open source, the sky's not even the limit. If you're ready to level up your own open source game, Don't forget, we've been building Command Line Heroes, the game, all season long. And you can still contribute. Hi, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Jared. And we're the developers of Command Line Heroes, the game. We checked in with Jared Sprague and Michael Clayton from Red Hat to find out how it's going. Uh, I was um, a little surprised at how much interest we got so quickly. The response was just phenomenal and the pull requests started started flowing. What do you think it is that got people so excited? I think this just was, for a lot of people listening to the podcast, a kind of a catalyst for them to, to try it out, especially since we put out a call for all types of contributions. Um, any type of creative person that wants to contribute or, or engineer of any type, there's something that they can do on it. So what do you hope to see next from the community? The, the game is still in development. What do you hope to see? I would uh, personally really like to get into the groove of, of development where we have people contributing art assets and music and sound effects, storyline, coding. And uh, all of these things can all work in parallel and Once we get everyone into that groove and we're all just building a game and we can see it coming together, that's going to be a great time. By the way, we'll have a beta of the game on display at this year's Red Hat Summit in Boston. May 7th to 9th, thousands of command line heroes, just like you, are coming together for three days of innovation and education. Check out the details at redhat.com slash summit. And one final announcement. This may be the end of season two, but it's not really goodbye. Season three is already in the works. And in the meantime, we've got a bonus episode coming your way. 
we're hosting a roundtable with some of our favorite thinkers, getting them talking about what's next for open source. Look for that one in January. And remember, if you don't want to worry about missing new episodes, just subscribe. It's one click, it's free, and you'll be the first to know when new content drops. I'm Saran Yidbarak. Thanks for listening all season long, and keep on coding.